quarterback, same story. Hey, happy Monday. Welcome to the program. Pete Callender here, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Yeah, the Panthers. They make you watch the whole game just to lose it at the end for you. It's, it's I don't know, maybe it's almost like we've got some sort of a black cat for a mascot bad luck going on or something. I don't know. Uh, 704-570-1110, 1800 wbt 1110 A couple of programming notes real quick. Tomorrow, uh, 2 o'clock, you want to uh, tune in live. We've got Lieutenant Governor... Mark Robinson on the program, 2 o'clock for a half hour. We'll talk with him about his book, uh, We Are the Majority, and uh, some other stuff as well. I, 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 I'm curious, I want to maybe swap some, some war stories from the trenches of the restaurants, the restaurant industry. He talks about a, a bit about that in his book. Uh, you know, he worked in a, a furniture manufacturing facility as well, so... Kind of curious about some of those types of stories. Anyway, uh, also another programming note, Thursday evening, Davidson College, there is a candidate forum for U.S. Senate. It is not with Ted Budd or Sherry Beasley, although I see that now they've they've agreed to debate. That's going to happen sometime in October. I'm not sure if early voting is already underway when that happens, but whatever. Um, I will be moderating a forum between Shannon Bray, who's the Libertarian candidate, and um, Matthew Ho, who is the Green Party candidate. And so that's tomorrow evening. Go to the uh, Libertarian Party's website. has all of the information there. It's free and open to the public. So if you want to uh, learn about these candidates and their, the, you know, the the difficulty of third-party candidates getting on the ballot and their positions and that sort of thing. Um, That's going to be on Thursday evening. And, right, okay, and then, oh, Wednesday, Scott Lincecum from uh, Cato Institute, Duke University. We're going to talk about China. So that's what's coming up. But first, uh, did the lockdowns drive an increase in crime? Came across a couple of different stories here. And by the way, the city council uh, resuming their fall schedule again. So they're going to be meeting every Monday night. So I'll be watching that tonight. And at 5 o'clock tonight, the police chief, Johnny Jennings, is going to be making a presentation to the city council uh, about the crime stats. And I think he's going to be appearing with somebody else. He has Safe Charlotte Initiative, violence interrupters, that sort of stuff. And there's a grant. Uh, for the violence program expansion. I got some details on that. But in in reading through some of these different crime-related stories uh, from around the country, but specifically around North Carolina, there is a connection that some are making between the lockdowns and an increase in crime, specifically underage offenders. This has been an explosive new category. Well, it's, it's not a new category, but the, the explosion is new. right? The, the steep increase in youth offenders, this is a fairly new phenomenon. It's getting worse. Did the lockdowns drive an increase in this? There was a piece at the Washington Times. I will get to that. Let me start here, though. ABC 11, television station up in the uh, Raleigh area, I want to say Durham. Right, WTVD, 
The number of shootings this summer increased by 4% in North Carolina compared to last year. That is according to data from the Gun Violence Archive. So a 4% increase in shootings during the summertime. 243 people died across the state. 416 injured from gun violence between Memorial Day and Labor Day 2020. That says 2020. But now I'm wondering, is that the last year for the uh, for the incidents or is that is that a mis uh, a misprint? Is it 2022? I think it's supposed to be 2022 because it says compared to last summer, these incidents led to 20 more deaths and 56 more injuries. Right. So there's been an increase in summer shootings, summer deaths and summer injuries from guns, all of it from guns. The number of incidents averaged out to an incident every four and a half hours. The gun violence archive reported 29 shootings that led to a death or injury in Durham over the summertime. Now, that's actually down. That's down 31%. Now, I don't know what the number was like in Durham last year, (laughs) and so maybe that's driving that decline. That's the thing about statistics, right? Lies, damnable lies, and statistics and all. Raleigh had about the same number, actually the same number of shootings, 30. That was the same number over the summer as they had last year. In Charlotte... Give it up for the Queen City, y'all. The highest number of shootings in the state this summer at 86. That is a 51% rise from the previous summer. Fayetteville saw an increase of seven. Uh, There's a quote here from Becky Sertas, the executive director of North North Carolinians Against Gun Violence. And she says the... uh, Community violence intervention programs that some communities have implemented as a possible solution. This is what she's pointing to as a possible solution. Durham and Greensboro have these programs in place, and they reported a decrease in shootings this past summer. She said these programs use a public health approach to prevent gun violence by addressing the root causes of gun violence, like housing, education, and previous trauma. Her group is pushing for increased funding and expansion of these programs. By the way, this is what Chief Jennings is going to be discussing with City Council tonight as well. Ciertas also said communities can make a difference by starting after-school programs. Unfortunately, we're seeing perpetrators that are younger and younger, and so our youth need more to do, more mentorship, more support. Now, all of that is fine, but actually most of the shootings occur on the weekends. So maybe weekend programs as well, just I threw this idea out to uh, former school board chairman Joe White years ago when he was talking about how, you know, CMS needed to do more and more for the kids, right? And I said, you know, the the best way, the, the real way to ensure true equality of the outcomes is we just need to get the kids earlier. And he's like kind of shaking his head, yeah, yeah, and he's listening. I said, if we just get the kids like immediately, like maybe after six months, and then you just put them right into the system. And then then they will all have the same access to education. And at this point, he realizes that I'm, I'm half kidding, right? But kind of not. Isn't that the way that you would get full equality, right? Equality of outcome, that is. So CMPD Chief Johnny Jennings scheduled to update Charlotte City Council members on crime in the city, as well as initiatives aimed at making the Queen City safer. Now, what I found interesting is that the 
ABC11.com story cites this woman, Becky Ciertas, and her explanation is, oh, well, look, it's the community violence intervention programs. But don't we have some of those? The violence interrupters? Right? According to the agenda for tonight's city council meeting, yeah, we do. They endorsed an interdisciplinary public health approach to violence prevention with an initial focus on the Beatty's Ford Road Corridor. On February 12, 2021, they put out RFPs, they got proposals. Cure Violence Global was selected to provide technical assistance, and Youth Advocate Programs, Inc., was selected to implement the Cure Violence Global Violence Interruption Model. On February 22nd, 2021, Council ratified an interlocal agreement, got a bunch of money. They got another grant in August of 2021. So this has been going on, and now they're asking for more money for the programs. Well, if you're citing the programs as the reason why Greensboro and Durham saw a decline... Yet we've got programs like that here in Charlotte, but we've gone up by 50%. What gives? I know this is going to sound like a crazy radical question. But has this been working? In Charlotte, is it working? And how would we know? be glad to know they found a place for tater the potato has landed the fat man walks alone harvard university yeah they named brian stelter as a fellow of something or other at uh probably home fries i don't know but at uh harvard where he will be allowed to infect the young skulls of mush (laughs) with whatever it is that he was doing at cnn before they blew him out Yeah. Uh, Oh, of course. He's going to be discussing threats to democracy as a Harvard fellow. (laughs) Well, I mean, it just makes sense. He made every single show about that. How hard would it be to just, you know, turn it into a lecture for, you know, students who will just lap it up, I am sure. Lap it up. Um, Washington Times. Some of the most violent crimes in America are carried out by the youngest members of society. And those who deal with youth offenders say the trend will not reverse any time soon. The startling surge of lawlessness began during the pandemic. In cities large and small that bear the brunt of the crime wave, leaders are finding no easy solutions. This is why I asked, is this the effect of the lockdowns? Mark Little, executive director of Cure America Action, which is a Christian-based conservative uh, advocacy group focused on urban issues, said, quote, youth crime is absolutely spiking. All we have to do is look at the news and most of what we read about the hotbeds of violence in cities is crimes committed by youth. Analysts say the rise in juvenile violent crime is caused by several factors, including absentee fathers, shuttered schools during the pandemic and soft on crime district attorneys who either refuse to press charges or seek lenient sentences. It sends the message little says it sends the message to teens that they will pay no consequences for their crimes. 
Although no one has tracked national data on crimes committed by juveniles, statistics from areas throughout the country point to a widespread rise in violent crime by youths. And then the Washington Times piece by Jeff Mordock uh, proceeds to examine a number of jurisdictions and the rise of juvenile crime in those jurisdictions. Interestingly enough, there's another component here to the uh, local crime picture, which is Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department. I was talking with Mark Garrison from the WBT Newsroom, the news director over there, and um, he did a piece on Charlotte at 6 about CMPD changing its entire relationship model with media. And so I figured, you know what? He told the story very well. We'll take a listen to it after the news. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. The other day, Mark Garrison, WBT News Director, on his Charlotte at 6 program, went in-depth on uh, policy change at Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department about how they're going to interact with the media. So, without further ado, here is that report. And we start this evening with a question. What is Charlotte's police chief, Johnny Jennings, trying to hide? Why has he directed his public information office to stop answering most questions from reporters unless it is a positive story? I was called to a meeting at CMPD last week and told about the new rules. So when there are tough questions about police actions now or police policy, CMPD is no longer promising to answer. However... You can watch videos of cops singing. Lock, lock, lock your doors when you're going far. Take all of your stuff with you. Don't leave your gun in the car. That's a CMPD officer singing some crime prevention advice in a video on the Charlotte Police YouTube channel. Lock, lock, lock your doors when you're going far. Lock, lock, lock Well, it is catchy. But is this what CMPD should spend thousands of dollars doing to inform the public? Well, Public Information Director Sandy Vestola says it is this type of thing which now will be the priority in her office. Instead of working with reporters, which has long been the job of the Office of Public Affairs, they will now focus on trying to reduce crime and recruit officers through social media productions. Hello, I'm Tiffany Anderson. I am on the full-time bike unit in Central Division. Apparently answering questions from the media will now take a back seat at CMPD. Another deadly shooting, this one in Northeast Charlotte. So while the city's murder meter is on a record pace, 82 so far this year, and while transparency is a key issue with police everywhere, Charlotte police will draw the shades at headquarters and be less transparent. I think there's a challenge and a lack of transparency. That's newly elected city councilwoman Luana Mayfield. Now, she's been a harsh critic of police, even calling them terrorists, but she says refusing to work with media doesn't help the department's image with people who don't trust cops. And we need to have as much communication and transparency with the community as we possibly can. So, how do we know about all of this? Well, in a meeting that I was called to last week, CMPD laid out its new Avoid Reporter strategy. PIO Sandy Vastola told me, we are not legally required to answer your questions or provide you with interviews. Vastola makes $151,000 a year to run the public information office. 
but she made it clear to me that when a reporter emails a question, her team will only answer if it helps CMPD. That means many questions will be ignored. A lot of questions from the community as well as our media partners. For months, CMPD has referred to reporters as media partners, especially at press conferences. Uh, But no more partnership, apparently. And no more press conferences either. The department is getting rid of weekly or bi-weekly press briefings. We're going to hold all of our questions at the end. Like this recent briefing on drugs and schools. And then, as always, my team will be here to hang out with you afterwards to answer any questions that you may have. But no more opportunities like that for the media to ask questions on topics of interest to the public. Press conferences, no more. Unless it is at a crime scene where an officer will brief the media on what happened. Councilman Tark Bakari, a Republican and outspoken supporter of police, says he understands not having the regular press conferences anymore, especially if nothing is really going on. But he says if CMPD's policy is to refuse to answer questions on controversial or negative stories, that's a problem. So I, I think the balance, though, for transparency is going to be when there is an issue that we need transparency, when something's going on, good or bad, right? Are we making sure that we're, make, we're making CMPD uh, leaders available for that? So as long as we do that... But CMPD will not be doing that, apparently. PIO Sandy Vastola told me that if a reporter requests public records for what they perceive to be a negative story, they'll provide the records that are required by law, and then they will try to spin the story in their favor by contacting other reporters in town who obviously are CMPD-friendly. I asked Councilman Bakari about his thoughts on that. They clearly said in the meeting, we don't have to answer your questions. Uh, Sandy, the PIO director there, who makes $151,000 a year, more money than a beat cop here will ever sniff, And she says, you know, if you want to know something, make a public records request, which the city takes months to fulfill. And she said, you know, if you want to do a story that we think is positive toward crime reduction, we'll help you. Otherwise, we're not. I mean, it it was stunning. Well, what what we've got to do, no matter what, is make sure we get better across the board in fulfilling public records requests. It is ridiculous in this 2022 that it takes the amount of time it takes. CMPD's new policy in handling the media seems to run counter to policies recommended by the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Dr. Alex Del Carmen heads up the School of Criminology, Criminal Justice, and Strategic Studies at Tarleton State in Fort Worth, Texas. He says CMPD's policy is misguided. So, so that would actually be uh, completely counter to what we tell police departments to do in the context of best practices, right? So we know that sometimes uh, police departments have to deliver really bad news, and sometimes we know that the news that they have to deliver is counter to what people, you know, a positive uh, outtake or a positive stance on the police department itself or some of their officers. But we always advise police departments to be transparent, uh, to, to basically rely on the media as a conduit of information to the public. And so, so I, am, I am absolutely shocked that a police department in today's 21st century would actually make a statement to the media that says, unless your comments are or, or requests are positive, or well, we're going to evaluate those, 
we're going to grant you the information that you seek. It, it is it is absolutely counter to what we tell police agencies to do on a daily basis. One of the reasons they say they're doing it is because they get so many requests and also because they say we're shorthanded of officers. We're going to put our focus on stories that try to recruit more officers and uh, build morale in the community. So, you know, law enforcement entities across the nation, for the most part, have their own uh, public information officers, PIOs, right. and they have their own media uh, units, right? And so their, their media component uh, is their focus all day and night, is to put out a positive message, to be able to recruit and, and give it the impression that law enforcement is a noble profession, which it is. And so in the end, uh, to say that they're not going to be able to honor requests from the media because they're shorthanded, well, guess what? The rest of the country is, is exactly in the same boat, right? Not only in law enforcement, but across pretty much every industry there is. And so, you know, I don't, I haven't heard or seen other reputable law enforcement entities across the U.S. tell the media, we are shorthanded, therefore we're not going to be attending to your request and, uh, you know, have a good day. I just haven't seen that. Dr. Alex Del Carmen, noted criminal justice expert. Newly elected Mayor Pro Tem Braxton Winston, who's also no fan of police, says he's troubled by the new policy. I do have concerns. Um, I have not been briefed myself um, by the police chief yet, um, but I've reached out to call to the manager uh, to, to see if policies are actually in line with city um, policy. So this is something I'm looking into. I think it's very serious and very important of, of making sure uh, that the public is, is well-informed, um, all good, bad, and ugly. There may be some listening who say, big deal. After all, mistrust of the media is high. But consider at a time when mistrust of police is also at an all-time high. If Charlotte police only want positive coverage, and if they refuse to answer tough questions, can you trust them? Is it good public policy for high-paid public information officers to ignore reporters' questions and spend taxpayer dollars on a song and dance. Lock, lock, lock your doors when you're going far. That Take most people will never watch. Gun in the car. Lock, lock, lock your doors when you're going far. Lock, lock, lock your doors when you're going far. Now you probably are wondering, so what exactly is Police Chief Johnny Jennings saying about his new shun the media, don't answer questions policy? We certainly wanted to get an answer to that question as well, so I decided to follow the new policy. I sent an email to Sandy Vastola a week ago asking for an interview with Jennings. True to their word, they ignored the email. All right, so that's Mark Garrison. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. So the avoid reporter strategy being implemented by Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department, they called, uh, the CMPD called uh, news directors into their uh, downtown headquarters, I guess, and they, they had some meetings with the news agencies, the, the representatives, including our own Mark Garrison, the news director here, and they said, like, we're not, under any obligation to help you tell any stories to for you to do your job. And and look, I, I agree. That's true. They're not obligated to always help media tell stories that media wants to tell. I totally get that. But I also understand 
that you don't know what a, quote, good story is always until maybe years later, right? I mean, if you are going to view every single story that media does about the you know, local police department through a, uh, through a prism or through a decision matrix of, is this going to help us or hurt us right now? Because in the long run, stories that can seem damaging could actually turn out to be beneficial, right? If it, if it builds credibility that you do actually weed out, like, if you, like, for example, you got a bad cop, right? Not a great story that you got a bad cop, but if you get rid of the bad cop, then that would increase the department's credibility, right? So short-term, bad story, long-term, good story. Right, this is part of the problem. This is the same sort of deal with you know trying to judge the founding fathers by modern standards. Is they at the time they didn't know what was going to be the future, what the future standards and norms were, that sort of thing. I also this part where Mark says in the piece that if they get a story request that they have to fulfill the uh, or an, a request for information that they have to fulfill under the law, they will fulfill it. But apparently they're also going to then give that information to other media. So if you're working on an exclusive, look, this tells me that they are obviously mad at somebody or somebody's. that there are probably a couple of reporters working in Charlotte that have angered CMPD to some degree. I, I don't know what about. I don't know what the stories are. Uh, and this is the adversarial nature of the relationship. There was a. I don't even know if he's still over there. Channel 36, Glenn Counts, the old uh, cop beat reporter. And I remember uh, participating in a panel discussion with him. um, And I think Sharon Smith from BTV. And we we went and spoke to um, law enforcement officers from around the state. Uh, Julie Hill uh, was working for the city. She was the public information officer. And then she went to work over at the... Uh, CMPD and she organized this thing and she brought in me and a couple of other reporters to talk about how we interact with law enforcement what's my job what's your job that sort of thing and uh, during this forum Glenn Count said look I use you you use me let's not beat around the bush this is the relationship I do wonder though if the nature of the relationship is going to be changed to this degree Do you really need a PIO at that price?